Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody is having a great Labor Day holiday weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The market closed down last week as still strong jobs numbers showed signs of slowing growth and concerns that European energy prices would rise. And days after the European Union adopted a sweeping series of moves to mitigate energy prices, Russia said today that it would cut off gas supplies to Europe until sanctions are lifted. Czech unions demonstrated against rising energy and food prices, which no doubt comforted Moscow that its strategy of extortion might succeed. Soaring European energy prices and deglobalization are driving inflation both in Europe, but also for U.S. defense contractors that are calling on the government to cover their rising costs. Ukraine went on the offensive against Russian-held areas of the country, but progress has still been slow. In Britain, Liz Truss will succeed Boris Johnson as prime minister tomorrow as concerns mount in Washington and Europe that relations will grow even rockier given statements she made not only as foreign secretary, but on the campaign trail to win over the hard Brexiteer faction of the Conservative Party. The U.S. Air Force and Israel ordered more KC-46 tanker aircraft from Boeing. uh, And unfortunately, the launch of NASA's moon mission Artemis One was again delayed, but better to delay than have an unfortunate incident. Joining us to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in sunny Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have everybody back on again together. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be back, Vago. Thank you. Great to be here, Vago. Actually, in Montreal for Labor Day, they have one here, too. Oh, uh, sorry about that. I should have said you are a roving bureau uh, and, uh, and, and great that you could call in from our great neighbor up north. Before we get started, uh, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. Uh, And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And please check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the on Naval and Maritime Matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful uh, look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Ron, start us off as you do every week. Uh, Broader market, right? There's a sense that we've had our bear market rally. Uh, Very positive job numbers, more than 800,000 people uh, either and some very good re-entering the job numbers uh, figures, right? Folks getting off the sidelines. Uh, But then uh, the European energy picture came into sharper relief. Uh, pipeline interrupted by Russia, right? I mean, Russia always has a you know technical reason why something's uh, interrupted, uh, th- thinks it's being cute, um, right? Walk, walk us through you know the sentiment on the street. What are the do- uh, drivers, even on a slow week? Because obviously, folks will be back in force this week uh, and then beyond. Uh, and how the group performed uh, against these sort of broader market sentiments. Yeah, the, uh, the S&P was down uh, 2.5% uh, in the week. And I think there was a lot of you know, factors that you mentioned. There's you know, fears about inflation, fears about inflation, not just in the U.S., but, but in Europe, um, and, and that with what the Fed has to continue to, to do. 
real inflation, real interest rates are still uh, very negative, uh, which is sustain, unsustainable. So if you kind of look across the basket of stuff that we look at, you know, the 10-year yield is uh, at 3.2%. It's been climbing higher. Um, WTI crudes at 90, Brent crudes at 96. Uh, what's what's kind of eye-popping, uh, I think, if you look in, at the markets in Europe uh, today, uh, the, the Netherlands uh, futures contracts on natural gas jumped from 210 all the way up to 280. Uh, last I looked, there were about 250, right? So you're really seeing an impact on uh, natural gas futures prices in, in Europe, given uh, what's going on uh, in Russia. Uh, broadly, when you look at the, the, the stocks and our coverage, just a, you know, a flavor of the large cap names, Boeing was down almost 8% last week, General Dynamics 4%. The, the, the pure play defense guys were more defensive uh, L3 Harris and Lockheed Martin were both down about a percent and a half. Uh, Northrop Grumman was only down about a percent. And then uh, Raytheon Technologies was somewhere in between, uh, down around uh, 5%. 5%. Uh, and the VIX index ended the week up uh, at, at 25. And remember, it got as low as, uh, as 19, and it's been in this range between kind of 19 and 30, and it's been trending up. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens when uh, everybody gets back into the office or the virtual office. Uh, later this week, but um, I would expect, and the bank is calling for continued volatility, uh, and, and uh, that seems kind of the, the market we're in. Uh, the dollar has gotten quite strong, right? I think today uh, the euro traded below below parity, right? Maybe it was like 99 euro cents or whatever it is to, to the dollar. Um, so the dollar has become quite strong, which isn't the best thing for the global economy, particularly when you're concerned about inflation. It's not quite a bad thing for the U.S., but Globally, it's it can be uh, can be tough, but I think that's kind of where we are. Uh, and uh, not to sound like a travel agent, right? I mean, it's a good time for Americans to be traveling. Uh, but but talk a little bit about the, the challenges of it. And Sash, I want you to uh, in a moment discuss what that means um, from a European uh, perspective. Uh, but give us this sense on why, uh, right? I mean, th- this is a double-edged sword when the dollar gets this strong. Yeah, I mean, it, you think about it, it just makes um, American exports that much more expensive, right? So when you start thinking about global balances of trade, so on and so forth, um, it just just kind of works works against that. Um, so that's that's why, from a you know global perspective, it's more difficult. And I think you know, Sash will probably have some things to say, but I mean, when you think about aircraft globally are priced in dollars, and aircraft leases are priced in dollars. If you're an airline, uh, any other place in the world besides the U.S., you can make you know, the cost of an airplane more, the cost of your lease more. And on top of that, you've got to deal with uh, financing aircraft, which is becoming more expensive. So um, it does trickle down kind of across the uh, the, the spectrum on, on commercial aero. Um, uh, Sash, I uh, want to bring you uh, into this. Obviously, the inflation picture and the energy picture is far more dire uh, in Europe than it is in the United States, right? I mean, we're seeing gas prices dropping at the pump. We're seeing inflation sort of stabilizing uh, whereas in Europe, it's it's soaring and energy is hitting, you know, quantum fold increases uh, in uh, in price. Uh, R- Russians, um, you know, unsurprisingly, have cut off the gas and said it's going to stay off unless uh, sanctions uh, are lifted. We are having demonstrations uh, in the Czech Republic, and it's still warm in Europe, uh, right? Uh, and gas supplies, as we've discussed on this program, are actually relatively good going into uh, the winter. Talk to us about the sentiment. Uh, what it's going to mean, uh, especially for the defense uh, and aerospace uh, group, taking into account all of these factors. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm actually, I'll do this in reverse. I mean, the defense and aerospace group had a lousy week last week uh, and worse in Europe 
than uh, in, in, in the US. You know, most average for the, for the stocks in our coverage was about 4% down. Um, and although we could sort of slightly pretend to ourselves that the, the large cap defense stocks outperformed civil, um, the, the fact is the mid cap defense stocks, who arguably are the companies that should be benefiting from uh, the war in Ukraine and the fact that they're just more, more, much more sensitive to incoming orders, uh, you know, got hammered. And the companies like, you know, Hensolt, Rheinmetall, both down um, over 6%, Leonardo down nearly 6%, coming down 5%, you know, so it was a really, really torrid week. And um, we don't have a benefit of Labour Day uh, and it's been a pretty lousy day in European markets as well. I mean, average for stocks and set in the coverage is a, is a couple of points down again. The market is risk off, doesn't want to buy equities. Um, and at the moment, just doesn't want to look at the broader themes in terms of European rearmament uh, and the state of the war in Ukraine and so forth. Um, you know, demonstrations in, in the Czech Republic. I think it's very important to remind people, uh, you know, contagion in a European uh, context is, is political contagion is remarkably hard. And there hasn't been a huge amount of um, uh, cut through from this to other European countries yet. But we've clearly got, as you say, you know, gas prices and gas, uh, you know, gas is incredibly important in Europe for two reasons. First of all, the vast majority of uh, houses and uh, factories are heated directly by gas. But secondly, all electricity is priced off gas because a huge amount of the power generation is gas fired. It, but, and it's the, uh, it's the switch or it's, it's the, um, it, it's the, uh, fuel that tends to set the overall price, even if you've got a mixture of nuclear, wind, uh, solar, and possibly even coal, if you're really un unlucky, it's gas that tends to set the price. And that's why Europe has got such a horrible inflation problem and a horrible growth problem uh, going through Q3 into Q4 and you know, in, in all probability um, beyond that. Um, I think you know, the, 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 the challenge for European uh, nations, and they, t they are trying to do it on an individual basis as well, clearly as the EU doing it, is it's really hard to, uh, to come up with a solution other than sort of COVID-style subsidies, just literally throw money at the problem, throw money at, at people who, who have got problems. It's really hard to come up with a solution to the, to the high gas price. Um, uh, and uh, Germany is talking about a 60 billion euro uh, bailout. UK is going to have to do something at least as big as that, um, and, or, and you know most other European countries are as well. So you know this is going to have a horrible effect on government uh, def uh, budget deficits, and it's not obvious that's necessarily going to uh, resolve the problem, unless and I think this is an incredibly unlikely event. Uh, you know Russian supplies come back on stream again. But so what is the impact on defense spending? That has been running higher than than even France uh, normally would would accept. Uh, does this change? And whereas governments at the same time are saying we've got to stand up, we have to do more, uh, build more capability to confront uh, the Russians, fill uh, stocks. Does this change the quality and the nature of the spending? And and what does that mean for bigger programs? Right. I mean, does this alter some European governments, for example, away from shipbuilding and more toward terrestrial? Uh, uh, forces. And we're going to talk in a separate question and more deeply about Liz Trust and what she means for UK defense. But do you think that this change, I mean, I, I, this is a lot of debt loading uh, at a time when borrowing rates are, are going up uh, for everybody. And so this notion that we're going to continue to spend strong on defense, I'd like it to be true. I just am beginning to lose a little faith. 
that that will be the sustained picture, especially if people start taking to the streets. I don't think anybody ever likes spending on defense or any government ever likes spending on defense. I can't think of time when, you know, I mean, it's, it's very seldom politically uh, popular uh, to spend on defense. Um, we, we are a very unusual subset uh, in, in that regard. Um, and the vast majority of spending on defense is non-discretionary. You do it because you have to, not because uh, it's something that gives you, a, a, you know, any sort of pleasure or, or you know, particular economic benefits. Um, you know, governments, companies would like to say otherwise, but it, it doesn't tend to be the truth. Um, I, I haven't actually heard anybody talk about whether um, uh, defence budgets are, are going to be cut as a result of rising borrowing costs and rising energy subsidy costs, or indeed whether, you know, the, the planned increase can change. I think the degree to which Germany was very, very badly frightened by at the invasion of Ukraine and realized that they had made a massive policy error for 20 years, 25 years. I think that tends to make the, the, the you know, the planned increase in German defense spending overall relatively secure. But, you know, in the timing of it, whether huge amounts of money come in uh, 2023 or actually whether it is phased over a period, 23, 24, 25, 26, even 27, the latter seems more likely to me. I think, you know, does the rising gas uh, or energy prices, rising inflation and, and so forth, mean there are changes in policy direction. I don't think anybody has the faintest idea, and I'm not even going to start guessing uh, at this stage. I'd, I'd be very surprised, frankly. Um, but I, you know, it, at the moment, governments are just sort of staring into you know the headlights of of, of, of the rushing uh, vehicle and, and wondering what to do. I mean, it really is rabbit time. Do you well, I'd want to just briefly discuss uh, Airbus CFO uh, Dominic Assam, uh, sort of a surprise leaving, uh, surprise departure after four years uh, at the firm? He was a CFO that came from outside uh, the company and didn't traditionally come up through the ranks uh, of uh, Airbus. Uh, what's what's your uh, sense uh, before before we move on? Um, I, I think it's a great shame. Um, I think he was doing a perfectly good job, and it's very hard to get new CFOs at a level like this. You know, Airbus is an, aston- is, a, is an astonishingly complex company. It is a systemically important company in a European context um, and in a, in a global context. Um, I think Airbus has got a challenge in trying to work out, do they bring in another outsider? As you rightly point out, Dominic Assam came from outside Airbus. Um, I think that's a risk because I think it always takes about a year for an outsider to uh, to get up to speed um, when they come into an aerospace and defense company. Um, an insider would be better, but an insider might not have the ability to uh, provide the same sort of balance at board level uh, that is sort of you know, healthy in terms of corporate governance. So I think you know, overall for Airbus, there's, there's going to be a period of some, uh, certainly some uncertainty because uh, Dominic Assam doesn't leave until March of next year. Um, and thereafter, I think it will be you know, another six, nine plus months before his successor, whoever she or he is, actually really gets to terms with things. From shareholders' point of view, the bad news is that unless uh, Dominic Assam announces a share buyback at the end of this year, and he's always said he wanted a very, very substantial 10 billion euros of net cash as a buffer, um, I think shareholders will see that now till 2024 plus. Um, because, you know, the, the new person will definitely want to get their feet under the table before they announce that. 
It is very dignified, though. I like the way the Europeans uh, do this. They announce the departure date. You're working toward it. There's time to fill it, whereas you know we tend uh, more often than not to do it somewhat more abruptly uh, than that. And obviously, uh, Dominic is going to be going to take over as CFO of SAP. One of uh, you know, I mean, Airbus is a very important company in a European context, but from a German context and a global context, SAP is a is a pretty big prize. Um, Richard. Yeah. Um, what what does all of this mean uh, from your perspective for commercial air travel, right? I mean, we're looking at a rockier economic picture. We're, you know, the question is whether or not we have peaked, right? I mean, that's something that we discussed uh, some some weeks ago. Um, economic problems are never limited to one particular uh, sector, and we are seeing a little bit of global uh, contagion, right? I mean, we didn't talk about it, but you know, China is exacerbating tensions in Asia, which is contributing uh, to a whole series. And, and, you know, its lockdowns continue, for example, uh, and, and a lot of economic fallout, right? I mean, you know, when when China catches a cold, uh, you know, every every everybody else gets sick as well. And Rana Furar uh, wrote a great piece in the FT that deglobalization is what is going to be driving inflation. And we've been talking about deglobalization for years on this program that it's, you know, we were in a golden era and we're in a less golden era. Walk us through some of these themes and trends and, you know, how it is that it's going to be affecting the air travel market. And if you want to say anything about Dominic, uh, you know, go, go ahead and address address that as well or the dollar euro balance or anything else. Yeah. So much to talk about in the macro sense. And you look at the two, uh, I guess, big poles of my coverage universe and they're at opposite extre- extremes. You know, first of all, on, on defense, I completely agree with Sash. You know, I just don't think there's any connection. Historically, there's absolutely no correlation whatsoever between economics and defense spending. It's driven purely by politics, threat, perception of threat, everything like that. I think defense is, uh, for all the wrong and sad reasons, going to be completely immune from these macroeconomic headwinds. Then the exact opposite uh, extreme, yeah, commercial transport. And there's so much going on. It's uh, not just the FT article. I think it was Annie Lowry and the uh, the Atlantic, really interesting interview with someone who'd been seeing this for years, but the end of a golden era in terms of fast growth and low inflation. It's been kind of a, an amazing, I don't know, 40, 50 years, whatever, but it seems to be, or it has been, coming to an end for a couple of years. You know, China is one problem, deglobalization another, and, and inflation, of course, is creeping up. Cost of capital is creeping up. Um, yeah, this year, of course, Airbus and Boeing famously downshifted their market growth expectations from the, from the long run from, you know, we used to disagree, is it 4.9, is it 5.1, is it 4.8, whatever. Now both are saying somewhere between mid and high threes. Uh, and that was based upon cost of carbon, you know, a lot of environmental factors, transitioning to SAF, whatever else. Well, it turns out we might not have completely factored in the bigger headwinds, that inflationary aspect of deglobalization, the absence of fast growth. You know, I mean, China just going from, okay, market economy works great to, gee, maybe Comrade Mao had something to offer us. Uh, That's really all very bad. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have this conversation in a year and it's now low threes and the days of 3.6 and 3.8 are viewed almost nostalgically. Now, the other side of this unpleasant coin uh, is that our entire industry is geared towards not inflation, but deflation. We've become poster children for deflation, both in terms of airline ticket prices and yields and also the real cost of jets and (laughs) components and technologies on them. And it's going to be really interesting. Look, there's 11,000, over 10,000, around 11,000 jets on backlog. What do those contracts look like in terms of inflation provisions and pass-through expectations, not just at the top end with the customer, 
but also all through the supply chain. And I expect there are a lot of smart wires out looking at this very issue now. And we need to adapt to this new reality, basically slower growth and higher in higher costs for everything up and down the food chain, whether it's labor or materials or, you know, the finished product itself, if you're an airline. So we've got a lot of adapting to do. Um, None of the headwinds on the commercial aero side promise to abate anytime soon. All of them are pretty bad. And again, you contrast with this with the defense sector, you have kind of a recipe for crowding out, something I've been worried about for some time, where the defense side of things cost plus contracts, continued growth, do whatever you want, hire whatever you want, buy whatever you, whoever you want, buy whatever you want. Whereas in the commercial aero side, you're competing with that. And that seems like another macro concern for the industry. Ron, your, your sense on, on where we are and, and where we're going? Uh, I think Richard uh, hit on uh, a lot of important points. Um, you know, it's as he as he highlighted, right? I mean, the, the long-term growth of the industry, you know, is it you know, 1.5 times global GDP, 1.7 times? And there was always kind of that debate. But you know, you know, where where do where do we ultimately end up? I mean, the reality is, right? If if we're not buying inexpensive goods made in China, um, if the consumer still wants to do that, you have to find other low-cost places to do it. Um, it it's interesting. Um, there's there's a couple different headwinds going on right now. So one of the things we've been tracking actually is um, freighters. And if you look at the number of parked freighters, the number of parked freighters has started to go up. Um, and part of what's going on here is um, global freight is starting to normalize. And what I mean there is the cost to ship something overseas what, you know, via the sea uh, was very expensive during COVID. So to give you a, an idea, shipping, say landing gear from Canada to Hamburg um, via sea was about $20,000 to do it by air was about $22,000. So you saw a lot of stuff move to aircraft. I think you're starting to see that rotate back. And then on top of that, as global trade slows, you're starting to see kind of the freight market slow. So um, I think there's a lot of adjustment that has to be made. I mean, that maybe that's a roundabout way of saying, um, you know, there was a, a lot of calls that, you know, that the, that the, the freighter market's going to be the savior of wide bodies. It might not be. Um, and that's just one of the other factors of, of what we're seeing globally and, and, and the slowdown. Do you guys get that same sense? Just uh, to stash into uh, you, Richard, uh, b- b- before we move on. Actually, I'll, I'll just leap in very quickly. I mean, I, I've got, I've got very little to add to what, um, uh, you know, Richard's, I think, excellent um, uh, sort of summary. Um, but just to tack on to what Ron said, one of the things that really interested me, and I've been a bit worried that expectations for the freighter market have been very, very inflated for some time, because you know, people have basically taken freighter, freighter aircraft conditions of 2020 and 2021 and just extrapolated them, which is a very, very sharply rising um, you know, bottom left, top right line. Um, and I, I, one of the things that really took me back uh, today was um, seeing that Israel has decided to ban all four-engine freighters for environmental reasons. Now, okay, there are plenty of two-engine freighters, 777s, um, 767s, and even the odd uh, A330 and A300. But you know, once you get uh, countries starting to say um, four engines bad, two engines good, and s- s- picking on freighters specifically, um, 
I just, you know, there's a degree of a sort of, of, a, of a gamble that they can do without a huge amounts of freight that can't be carried in, in cargo be- or passenger aircraft bellies anyway. But I think that really is a mark that the, the freighter market is, uh, is absolutely at the top and about to turn down. From my standpoint, Ron's right, you know, canary in the coal mine moment. Um, and there is, per se, just a lot of extrapolation based upon some impossibly great cargo trends, both historically and for the pandemic and whatever else. There are some positive tailwinds, you know, uh, Asia shifting towards uh, a kind of real-time, well, rejiggering a supply chain, uh, real-time delivery of certain key components, and indeed, uh, even internet shopping and whatever else. That's good. Good enough to justify the massive capacity expansion, you know, three, triple seven, 300 ER conversion lines and whatever else. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I'm a little concerned. Uh, Ron, let me ask you uh, the inflation question, uh, right? Uh, the Pentagon, uh, Mike McCord, uh, well-respected as comptroller, was saying, look, I mean, the nature of DOD contracts means that we've got some time and inflation pressures will be mit- mitigated. And each one of those companies have long-term contracts as well with their suppliers. But eventually, inflation is a real thing, as we've discussed in this program. And that is an allowable cost. And now the companies are increasingly going uh, to their associations and asking for their help uh, in order to try to help uh, get redress uh, from the Pentagon on that. Do do we know ballpark what these numbers uh, are uh, that folks are looking for and what the real-term inflation pressure on these companies is, Uh, given that some of these supply contracts, right? I mean, I mean, people have been delivering on these contracts and these guys, you know, buy lots of aluminum and lots of other stuff and it's on longer term contracts, right? But I mean, what's the impact sort of immediate and longer term and what's the number that's going to make them right? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. Um, so I think you have to think about it this way. I mean, what, what inflation are they seeing, right? So, you know, there's the raw material inflation and then there's the labor inflation. The raw material inflation will be volatile, that'll bounce around over time, but the labor inflation is stickier and I don't think anybody who's getting a paycheck today in six months or in six years will expect to be paid less than they are today, right? So when you think about what the industry is seeing, particularly for defense, right? Because defense in some senses is is, is a bit of a utility. um, A lot of it has to do with labor inflation. And the industry, roughly speaking, right? So this is just really rough numbers. About half the industry is cost plus, half the industry is fixed price. On the cost plus contracts or contracts of that nature, you can pass it right through clearly, right? I mean, that's 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 pretty easy. It's on the the fixed price or other structured contracts, and as those contracts go up for renewal, they'll be knocking on the door of whoever, um, you know, trying to get adjustments for both uh, labor and raw materials. Uh, and and it's my sense that as as you probably know, I mean, the DOD doesn't want to squeeze the industry on inflation. So back to your question, I mean, how big a number is it? Well, just think about, you know, you know, the investment accounts and then take the investment accounts and maybe multiply it by what, what do you think, you know, real labor inflation is, and you know, raw material inflation. So I don't know, plug in a number, call it 6%. So that's, that's what you're looking at. It's that, it's, it's, it's that kind of number that's going to, they're going to ask for. Um, so, uh, I would, I would expect to see that come through the other conundrum that defense has had to deal with as opposed to commercial. And this is really, we've seen this in the last two quarters of reporting from the industry, the commercial side of the industry has had more freedom or more willingness to try to be creative with the supply chains, buy ahead on inventory, do different things to try to mitigate the best they can. 
um, the supply chain um, um, issues that they're seeing. I mean, granted, it's not perfect, and we all know, you know, Airbus and Boeing have had their challenges, but um, on the commercial side, the industry has, has tried to be creative. On the defense side, you know, my sense is the industry is more run just in time, given the annual cadence of the defense uh, budget process. Many of the companies aren't incented, or at least weren't incented, to invest ahead in inventory unless they were being paid to do so. And in many cases, the only times they're paid to do that are on you know, massive, long-duration projects like ships and so on and so forth. Um, and so if, if, if you're a shorter-duration thing like electronics, you're seeing the electronics industry and defense really get hit hard because they, there was no historical precedent to like buy ahead inventory, right. do this, do that. So um, it's a, it, they're in a tricky spot right now. So we'll, we'll see where it goes, but um, you know, call it call it five or six percent of the investment accounts. That's the kind of number you're thinking about. Um, uh, is, Sash, how much of an impact is this going to have on European suppliers and European defense programs? Right. I mean, the United States tends to have deeper pockets, and so we cover this sort of stuff. Uh, but even you know, there is a sense that this is going to be a sixty billion dollar hit a year on the Pentagon. Uh, in, in terms of its budget, and many have been calling for an even bigger increase in the defense budget, right? Cover the cost of inflation as well as spend more on programs. What's the impact, whether in the in the UK, you know, I mean, the, you know, Bercy, uh, you know, I mean, France is industrially strategic, but the tre- Treasury Ministry also is cognizant, um, you know, of, of, of what it's spending, right? What, how are European governments handling this inflation surge when it comes to their defense programs? Well, you know, the honest answer is they're not yet because, uh, you know, I go back to it's, you know, it's rabbits in the headlight of a car. They're, they're, they're not actually thinking or talking about it. Um, they will do it at some stage, but at the moment, what they're worried about is the price of gas. And European governments are a big sweeping generalization, but do, you know, do find it hard to, um, you know, to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, when they do, um, more European contracts are fixed price and a smaller proportion in general are. Um, uh, cost plus. So, you know, that will give them, a t- uh, the governments, a bit of protection for a while. It's going to make life a bit harder for the, for the companies, but that will, e- that will e- even out over probably the next 18 months or so. Um, European, in, in as much as we have good data yet on uh, labour settlements, European labour settlements have been of the order of 5 to 6% uh, so far. Generally, what companies have got, have got away with is paying a um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a single digit percentage increase in salaries and then some form of uh, one-off payment, you know, thousand euros, thousand pounds, whatever it, it is this year to, tr- to try to deal with the initial inflationary pressures. Now, will that work next year? Any, a, that, that's anybody get, anybody's guess. Um, I've been surprised at how low the, uh, you know, the labor, labor settlements that we've seen so far have been relative to the headline, uh, the inflation rate headlines. What that does, of course, is that puts pressure on governments to, to deal with the cost of living elsewhere in terms of, of fuel costs and t- hence capping those. I, I, I think we're going to see European um, government borrowing uh, spiraling up or spiraling down, depending on your, your viewpoint, very, very substantially uh, in, in the next uh, six months to a year or so. Uh, it's going to make everything difficult. The question for defence companies is going to be how much of what they do is actually indispensable as opposed to how much they, do they do is discretionary and can just be shifted to the right. Um, and and that's, I think that's going to be the, you know, the, the, the question that European governments actually start to have to ask themselves when they come back off vacation 
effectively today was when that started to happen in, in most of Europe. They certainly weren't thinking about it and talking about the policy implications over the summer. Um, uh, Richard, what are how do you, how do you think this is going to in, impact? Right, as the American who spends quite a lot of time looking at Europe and combat aviation programs tend to be among the bigger uh, programs uh, out there. Uh, what what do you what do you see as the impacts? You know, it's really in a lot of ways too early to know. I mean, obviously, it depends on how enduring this problem is. It depends on the programs in particular. One thing for sure, though, is that Pentagon programs aren't getting any less exotic in terms of materials and engineering specifications that, of course, labor required, which means we're going to be kind of on the cutting edge of inflation. It's going to be the worst of it. It's, you know, we on the, on the other side, I don't think defense is going to get hit by deglobalization the way commercial was, because this was never a terribly globalized industry compared to, say, home electronics or something like that. Um, a lot depends on, I think Sash alluded to this, you know, just to what extent, uh, you know, governments agree to go along and say, yeah, well, whatever. If it's 10% more to buy the equivalent products, well, we're just willing to pay that. And to what extent we're just going to have to make difficult decisions in terms of program timing and, of course, uh, quantities and force structure. Um, you know, that's going to be the most interesting thing to watch. Choices had to be made, Richard. Choices had to be made. Indeed. Uh, you know, I, I said, said, of course, ominously. Um, speaking of I mean, ominous. Fogger, if I could just, sorry, if, if I could just circle back to actually one of your original questions, which is really about the effect of the strengthening dollar. Um, the competitiveness of US products in Europe has gone down, you know, it's gone down about 15% in the last, uh, in the last six months or so. And I think it's, um, you know, clearly, when you have a product like the F-35 that everybody wants for political reasons as well as for military reasons, then um, Europe, you, you, know, you remain at the front of the queue. But I think that European pressures for domestic purchasing and indeed you know, the degree to which the comparable US product may be very, very expensive uh, when Treasury starts to look at the, you know, at, at the final numbers in a, in a competition, I think that's, that is going to be a fascinating situation for uh, for the next year or so, because you know the euro dipped below parity uh, today. Um, if you are a euro purchaser, uh, you're you know buying stuff in dollars is brutally expensive. There. Uh, speaking about a perilous uh, time, uh, Liz Truss uh, this time tomorrow uh, should be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, of Great Britain and Northern uh, Ireland. It's going to be the first UK. The fourth, she will be the fourth UK prime minister uh, in six years, which is sort of more along of what we're used to seeing from Italy and Japan uh, necessarily than uh, the UK. Um, I've never sensed more tension about the elevation of a prime minister in Washington, in Brussels, in Paris, in Berlin or elsewhere than with her. Um, they were in many respects not shared because Boris Johnson never questioned the special relationship. Neither did Rishi Sunak. We should point out that Boris Johnson was actually born in uh, New York City and renounced only in 2016 uh, his American citizenship. Um, she seems as though she has questioned that the special relationship isn't special enough to impede global Britain. Uh, she's somewhat actively antagonized Emmanuel Macron, um, uh, as, as well as a few other uh, countries. Um, at a time when there are very, very big domestic challenges that have to be addressed and, and you know, is, is saying that, well, look, tax cuts will do this. Um, although anybody who is a student of Margaret Thatcher with, you know, uh, after whom she's patterned herself, Margaret Thatcher actually raised taxes in order to be able to underwrite 
you know, defense investment and a number of other things uh, and, and social uh, programs. Sash, how do you sense this is going to play out? Um, and, and what does she have to do, right? I mean, there's a sense that Ben Wallace should stay in the job, but she's also made a lot of promises to a lot of people. Um, so you might not survive in the job. What's what's the latest in terms of where we are? Because I think it was what, half, a little, it was 81,000 conservatives who voted for her out of the party, right? Which is pretty good part of the vote. Um, walk us through where we are, what our elevation means, uh, and is it as perilous? And what are ways that she might be able to mitigate that um, and, and sort of calm tensions down? In no particular order. I, don't, I, I suspect that she is unaware or only tangentially aware of the concern in Washington. I think when it is made clear to her at a senior, very senior briefing level about that, she is more likely to wind back than not. Um, and stepping up from being foreign secretary, where this global Britain stuff um, is paramount to being prime minister, where actually you have to deal, you know, at a head of state level um, with the biggest single challenges, I think will change her focus there. Um, tensions with Europe, I don't think she'll worry about very much at all until they have a really a very, very significant effect, because frankly, that's what she's been elected on. Um, and uh, so I, I think that's that. I think she will treat that as a second order issue. You're absolutely right. She has spent, I, I mean, this has been a deeply unedifying election uh, campaign um, because both parties have been under, uh, both candidates have been under pressure to make promises which are maybe individually fulfillable, but collectively are totally impossible. Uh, to, to fulfill. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the uh, former chancellor in general, was rather more disciplined about the promises he's made. Um, Liz Truss has not been. Um, and, I, you know, it's unlikely to end well. Um, I, I wish you wouldn't talk about Ben Wallace like that, because I think that's a kiss of death. Once people say words to the effect of he's indispensable or he really should stay in the job, the odds are he won't, because that's politics. You know, pol- a, a tall poppy syndrome and be... Um, She's made a prodigious number of uh, promises to uh, members of members of her uh, parliamentary party about jobs. Uh, she can't deliver all of them, and um, the odds are that, that you know. Or I worry that Ben Wallace will, will therefore be moved on in some form. Great shame, but uh, you know, and no one will be happier than me if he stays in role. But I think it unlikely. Um, uh, yeah, you know, it's a it, it, it allows a way to select a leader. Although, uh, you know, there are there are worse, and we'll we'll come on to Gorbachev in a minute. Uh, we don't we we haven't done ourselves any favors. Um, the, the 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 trick, though, right? I mean, as 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 you said, is I mean, first she was she was foreign secretary, so there should be no surprise. And rather, you could make the case that she should actually have her fingers on the rail uh, and the sentiment uh, in Washington and elsewhere. And and she made the statements knowing that, which is what sort of concerns people a bit. Um, and then, you I know, think, is, I think is, she's is, very she she can be very, very loose with some of the statements she makes, which is a worrying tendency. Uh, it's actually it's a positively Johnson-esque tendency. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, right. I mean, and there was quite a bit of news coverage, I think, even on the BBC today, uh, as well as on Sky News, saying, you know, that oftentimes it was Boris Johnson that was the leveling effect on the statements she was making about Ukraine and a number of other places in the world. And folks, you know, were sort of noting that, wow, I mean, we're talking about Boris Johnson being a leveling, that it's not often that's said about Boris Johnson being the stabilizing yeah. influence or the or the corrective influence and how much more dangerous it will be once once she's in number 10 making the statements as the ultimate decision maker. The, the, the challenge is, and I think you alluded to it, Sash, right? 
the Northern Ireland issue, for example, and the pushing ahead of it, and the legislation was going to get back um, to re- rewrite that, um, whether it was Senac or uh, Truss. And that in particular is what is wor- is one of the particular things that's uh, worrying uh, the United States, right? I mean, Joe Biden has said, if you guys do this, then, you know, we're, we're going to be unhappy about it and we may be pushed to action uh you know breaking the north uh, the uh, not only the protocol but the good uh the easter agreements the good friday agreements and then the europeans haven't acted yet because they're waiting to you know very eu right wait until the legislation passes then retaliate how does all of that no play no, out? no 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 i don't think it's that i think they're actually waiting for for there to be a prime minister with whom they can deal i think there's been no point in them doing a deal with boris johnson because he was um Right. Uh, he, he, he was a lame duck. I don't think the legislation has been the pacing item at all. And the legislation is clearly uh, inflammatory for the EU, absolutely. But I think what's been pacing the EU has been waiting to actually have somebody they can, they can talk to. Um, it, it's, well, it's the point difficult... was they didn't pre, they didn't have to preemptively retaliate on anything. They're waiting to, for this to play itself through uh, b- b- before they get involved. But more, sort of more broadly, I mean, how do you think, um, you know, if, if you're looking at tea leaves, how does that play out? And what's the way for Liz Trust to have her cake and eat it too, ultimately? Keep her base happy without doing anything that actually economically damages one of the most important nations on the planet. Well, it's already damaging one of the most, well, it's damaging the UK, if that's the country you're talking about. I, I, I think- it, um, it is, it uh, is. <laughs> I don't recognize that particular identity. Um, look, politically, the priority should be to, to protect the Good Friday Agreement because that's the thing that's been signed up to. The problem is that um, Boris Johnson signed up to this uh, stupid Northern Ireland Protocol as well, which was mutually exclusive or mutually conflicting with the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement. But it's the Good Friday Agreement that, that protects peace in Northern Ireland, not the um, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. Can it be resolved? I very much doubt it. There's uh, so much more to discuss, including uh, Union. Uh, obviously, there were some Scottish lawmakers uh, that were recounting her sort of brushing aside as irrelevant uh, what happens in Edinburgh, which obviously didn't go down well with Scots, uh, who are considering another referendum, uh, which which London has said will, will not happen, uh, independence referendum. So obviously, the, the future of the Union is something we can discuss uh, at, at, another, uh, at another. I mean, do, do you think do, is that a concern that we should harbor in the back of our heads for those of us who've looked at um, the, the UK as being a united, at least, um, you know, organizationally since 1707? Is that something we should be concerned about more so going forward if, than we have been? If, if what you wanted was a Great Britain, uh, or rather if what you wanted was a, um, a, a union, then um, devolution has been incredibly bad for the, for the UK because it has encouraged uh, greater devolution to the point of independence. Um, what is, has been interesting about uh, Scotland, because Scotland is way closer to independence than anywhere else at the moment, is that the polls just have not shifted. And Scotland is just a divided nation between uh, the pro-unionists and the, um, uh, and the nationalists, and the nationalists trade at 48% and the pro-unionists trade at 52%, which is exactly what it was in the 2016 uh, referendum. You know, Liz Truss seems to go out of her way to um, to wind up uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the um, Scottish First Minister, during the hustings. And that's why these hustings were so incredibly damaging. But um, they would have been upset by her anyway. She is a less loathed person marginally than Boris Johnson, who was deeply unpopular uh, 
and um, she just doesn't have quite the same degree of um, uh, you know sort of lightning rod nature for Scottish nationalists. But I wouldn't I wouldn't rely on that. We've got five minutes and we've got two questions. Uh, I'd like to uh, address KC46 and Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, let me uh, quickly start with you, uh, Ron. Um, right, more aircraft for the US Air Force uh, as and an Israel Air Force uh, contract for four jets uh, came out for the KC-46 uh, Pegasus. Uh, Boeing is very happy with that. Obviously, the company has been under an enormous amount of pressure and billions of dollars of cost because of the fixed price nature uh, of uh, the last contract, which was for either, you know, one of you will correct me, but, you know, 179, 189, 149, I can't remember the exact number, about 56 of those airplanes have been delivered uh, to date. What does this tell us, right? Are the terms any better? I mean, did the Air Force give them any relief on that? Uh, and then, uh, Richard, maybe your sense on what this means on the on the global market. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, so when you look at the, the U.S. Air Force um, deal uh, and the Israeli deal, I think you have to think about them a little bit differently. They were announced at the same time. On the U.S. Air Force deal, uh, the revenue for aircraft, roughly speaking, um, just kind of take the, the size of the award divided by four, um, isn't really all that much more than they were getting in the past. That said, however, right, I mean, I think the program is a, it's a learning curve program, right? And the more they can deliver, the farther they can go down the learning curve. So when we looked at the numbers, we gave them some credit for going down the learning curve. Uh, but then the offset is what we talked about before. There's inflationary stuff. So when you look at everything that's going on, our guess is they'll probably have to take a charge on these airplanes that's on par with charges on a per airplane basis they've taken before, right? So on this new Air Force contract, I would expect another charge. On the Israeli side, um, they got better pricing on a per aircraft basis if you do that simple math. However, that ignores the fact for the Israelis, they're going to have to do some non-recurring engineering and the size of that is a bit of an open question mark. So even on the Israeli contract, how profitable, if at all, those aircraft will end up being is an open question. That said, however, it's more aircraft that they can go down the learning curve on. So um, the more aircraft they can put through the process, um, you know, the better, presumably, um, they'll get at. Right? Typically, it's an 85% learning curve. They double volume. Every time they double volume, they go down by 15%. So um, the more aircraft they can build, um, the better it is for them. Um, but the economics on this, it's, I, I don't think this is going to be a, a big profit windfall, but for the program, um, clearly it's a good thing. Richard? Yeah, a couple of issues. You know, one, uh, per Ron's point about profitability, it gets complicated after 2027, which under current rules uh, is basically when the cargo version for, you know, the cargo operators commercial have to, has to end production for emissions regulations. There's a school of thought that says they might seek an exemption. Uh, they might be successful with that, uh, and, or they might do something that alters the emissions footprint or whatever else, but there's no guarantees. And if this, if they decide, all right, we're going to switch to market to triple sevens uh, anyway, and people have had their fill of seven sixes and they're still used aircraft out there, so let's not worry about it. That means this becomes a 15 to 18 per year. That's rather than the current three per month, that's not going to do the economics any favors, right? Uh, that's a concern. The other concern is that Israel is a guarantee, right? I mean, yes, they were going to get the Israeli order. It was a matter of time. It's four aircraft. They may get a few more. Uh, the bulk of the international market seems to have gone to the KC-30 from Airbus. Uh, another complication is that the KC-30 is based upon the 330 pre-NEO, the CEO. Um, does that change 
that program's future. So there are a lot of big questions over the tanker market. This is an interesting development, but it really highlights the profitability challenges and the market challenges the KC-46 faces. And I should have I should have pointed out that Israel now joins Japan, which is a KC forty six customer. Italy also had the seven six the earlier version of the airplanes, as Japan also I think uh, had an earlier version of the airplane uh, as as well, the KC seven six seven. Have I got that right, Richard? Um, cat categorization wise. Yes, that's right. And I remember you and I taking a plane back from Le Bourget back about 20 years ago. And I think we saw one of the prototype KC-767s for Italy or Japan on the tarmac and wondered what that was, because I don't think it was widely known at the time. But yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and I uh, remember uh, being uh, outside uh, Napoli at the uh, Aeronavali facility, actually looking in, in the wings uh, uh, and actually checking uh, the assembly line out for those uh, aircraft uh, in Italy at the time. And, and a lot of pressure and a lot of criticism coming from the Italian side uh, on that, uh, as well as um, from the chief of the Italian Air Force uh, at the time, who had all sorts of amusing nicknames for each of the airplanes, including uh, I Have a Dream and Keep Hope Alive, um, uh, as, as, actually. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, Sash, um, I don't know if you have any KC-46 thoughts, but uh, I should point out that uh, in your younger years, you were uh, in the British Army and in the British uh, stationed uh, as part of the British Army of the Rhine uh, in Europe when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was, uh, uh, when the Cold War was playing out at its height and Mikhail Gorbachev uh, introduced uh, perestroika and glasnost restructuring and, and openness and uh, led uh, you know, and, and the point he was, you know, making was we have to change. And unless we change, um, you know, the, we're, we're going to fail. Right. We can't be a nation that puts satellites into orbit and builds this ferocious military and, and can't provide for toothpaste and, you know, what do you say, soap powder or, or something like that. Right. I mean, we were ultimately failing as a nation and when we had to do better, um, um, you know, give, give us your senses. People are remembering him. Uh, and uh, your father was one of Britain's uh, most legendary and ad admired uh, presenters uh, and, and television journalists uh, and uh, had an opportunity to interview Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, sort of give us sort of the Tusa family, you know, uh, remembrance uh, of a man who's widely admired around the world, except by Vladimir Putin and some of those around him. And, 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 and indeed, some Russians who looked at their, you know, blame Gorbachev for ruining um, the Soviet Union and the predictable lives, or at least so they perceived it, even though from Gorbachev's perspective, they were not, would not have been able to sustain what it is that they even had at the time. Yeah, this was the problem that they blame Gorbachev for ruining a perfectly good dictatorship in their view and a perfectly good dictatorial empire. Um, those are never sustainable. I, I think it's important um, and, you know, it feels a terrible long time ago. Just remember how dreadful the last decade of the Soviet Union was. The, the pre, Gorbachev's three predecessors, Brezhnev, Andropov and Chernenko, all died in office and died badly. Uh, you know, it was a long drawn out process. you got older and older people coming in um, as uh, general secretary of the Communist Party. They never looked as if they had uh, any um, uh, ability to, to sustain that. And Gorbachev, who was demonstrably younger, demonstrably just far more open-minded, um, came across as an astonishing breath of fresh air, even if you disagreed with him uh, at the time. He was uh, good at negotiating politically, internationally, off what was a 
in retrospect now a very weak hand, but I don't think even Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, George W. Bush recognised how weak his hand was at the time. Um, and, you know, to his fantastic credit, he left office peacefully um, and went on to do, you know, on balance, quite a lot of good in terms of his, his think tank. Um, did he dismantle the Soviet Union? Actually, if you look at the historical record, um, uh, Boris Yeltsin, his um, uh, successor, probably did more of the dismantling, but uh, he certainly started the process. And to his huge credit, what he didn't do was to do what all of his predecessors would have done or did, and Putin has done sub subsequently, which is whenever faced with an international challenge or a challenge to the unity of the Soviet Union Russia, he didn't send the troops in. He didn't, you know, he specifically said to East Germany, to Egon Krenz, you're on your own. Uh, you know, freedom uh, is a hell of a lot better with the, than with the exception of Lithuania, where um, he, he is still reviled by some, but yes. Yeah, but yes, true. But I mean, you know, the, the, the big call was Germany, East Germany, and he made the, he, he made the right call. And, you know, he's one of those rare, uh, you know, Nobel uh, laureates who's, you know, whose call looks better and better every year he went on. And he was, you know, he was just astonishingly open for a communist leader. And he was astonishingly young for any Russian leader at the time. And those... You know, uh, you know, there, there's a degree of star quality about him that I think people probably forget now. And uh, your remembrances uh, at the time uh, being stationed uh, in Europe, well, and then your yeah, dad's course, sense. Uh, well, I, I, I sort of, I sort of, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I think the fact that my, that, you know, the BBC was able to interview him and he was able to give a a perfectly decent interview, that just that was. Uh, that was you know, nearly revolutionary. The, the idea that uh, the BBC would have interviewed Leonid Brezhnev and got a, an interview that was worth watching uh, it, it was laughable. I think, from the point of view of defence, uh, you know, we were we were left with with no enemy because suddenly the Warsaw Pact ceased to exist and, and Russia very rapidly disarmed. Um, that's a good thing from the point of view of the soldier. From the point of view of the defence industry, we had. Nearly 30 years of peace dividend, certainly 20 years of peace dividend before 9-11 before uh, and the wars in Afghanistan and uh, uh, you know, Iraq really got going. And the concept of the peace dividend has been the hardest bit of his indirect legacy to, to turn around, as we discussed earlier on. Richard and Ron, anything you guys want to add as we, uh, as we part to the week on Gorbachev and, or anything else? I would make favorable reference to a really great piece in the Washington Post that says it almost feels like alternative history where one of the most important people of the century are consigned to some apartment at the end of their days. It's like discovering Elvis or JFK alive somewhere, you know, saying things about current events and nobody really listening. Uh, it was a little bit like Nikita Khrushchev, right? Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Living in, in, in obscurity uh, somewhere, or Kim Philby, right? Also living in obscurity. Uh, in the latter part of his uh, latter part of his days, uh, guys, thanks very very much. Hope you're having a great holiday weekend, uh, and hope you guys have a great week. And look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Bago. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks very much, and have a, have a very good holiday to you all. Yeah, great Labor Day to all, and thanks very much, Bago. <laughs>